Maybe it was the first moon landing. Maybe it was the Santa Barbara oil spill. Or the sight of an American river so polluted that it caught fire. All of that happened in 1969. The next year, Americans marked the first Earth Day, and the world soon followed. This Earth Day, humanity should be looking as hard at itself. The human animal has, in our two or three hundred thousand years, unmistakably altered a planet that's four and a half billion years old. In his new book, Humanimal, How Homo Sapiens Became Nature's Most Paradoxical Creature, the British geneticist and author Adam Rutherford gives our singular species its do's and its don'ts on why we are the imperfect monarchs of Earth's animal kingdom. We humans have spent much of our brief time on this planet trying to make a distinction between ourselves and the other animals we share this planet with. We seem to make it a desperate pursuit. Why is that? (laughs) Well, because we are completely self-obsessed species. And that is both factual and slightly critical, but with good reason, because we are fascinating. Fascinating to try and understand how we got to be the way we are and that we have we are the only creature that has managed to even question that, to hold ourselves up to the light and ask, are we special? So it is understandable that we have spent so much time trying to work these things out, this human exceptionalism. But at the same time, we, we sort of fall into these terrible traps of just being so self-obsessed that we, we project our own humanity onto the rest of the natural world and look to nature to explain our own behaviors. When in, in some cases it might help, in other cases it's completely unrelated. We seem to have drawn lines in the sand that we then have to step back from and draw more lines. For example, the distinction between humans and other animals, if we even acknowledged ourselves as animals, is that we were tool users and then we observed other creatures using tools. Because our evolution is that we are part of the animal world. We are an animal. We're classified as an animal and we're we're, uh, descended from apes and from everything else from that evolutionary trajectory that comes before the apes. And so we're very biological, but with this sort of shift in our behavior and our our thought processes of what we sometimes refer to as behavioral modernity or the cognitive revolution, but with that, we evolve new minds and new ways of thinking and new ways of interacting with each other. And in doing so, we set in, in motion a process which extracts ourselves from nature. We create gods, we assemble human exceptionalism and we say that we're specially created. And then Copernicus comes along and says, you know, the Earth is not the center of the universe. And the sun is not the center of the universe, comes long after that. And Darwin, my intellectual hero, comes along and says, well, actually, we're just another animal. And this isn't to be misanthropic. I think we're amazing. I'm a, I'm a sort of humanist with a small h. But at the same time, we're so anthropocentric that we fall into these terrible traps and think of ourselves as special when we're not and miss things that are special about us that we should be really focused on. What do we miss that is special about us? Well, I think that this Darwinian phrase, which he talks about how we differ by degree and not by kind. And it's a really important phrase, that, because it suggests this continuity with the rest of the natural world. That is true when looking at our own behaviors today and things that are un- we once thought were unique to us but turn out not to be quite so unique. But on the other hand, there are things like speech and language, you know, what we're doing now is so many orders of sophistication greater than anything else we've examined so far, any other form of animal or non-animal communication between organisms. But I do think that it is speech, language, communication is such a complex set of skills that we have 
my five-year-old daughter has a much more complicated lexicon than any other creature that has existed outside of humankind for the last four billion years. And I think that is worth noting. There's a speech in Hamlet that begins, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, and ends the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Well, that's the opening line of the book. And then Hamlet goes on to say, but what is this quintessence of dust? And that is sort of the key paradox. Let's talk a little bit about what it is that our fellow animals do that we think of anthropomorphic, whether it's dolphins or ravens or elephants who have some kind of death observance when we think of burial rituals as uniquely human. What surprised you in doing your research for this book? What surprised me most is that so many behaviors that look familiar to us may be unrelated. And I think what was interesting is how often we just conflate those two things. We struggled with understanding animal emotion for a long time now because our temptation is to anthropomorphize and, and to say, well, like that, that animal is experiencing the same emotion that, that I'm experiencing right now. And then as I, and Darwin wrote about this in the 1870s with a book that hasn't really been cited as much as his others, which is on emotions in man and other animals. And I think that part of that is because the subsequent reaction to that work was that he had done exactly that. He over-emotionalized animals, when in fact, as science developed and became more professionalized, we needed to step away and say, well, we can't know this. We can't know that this cow is happy or upset that it's being milked. But at the same time, I actually argue in the book that we've gone too far in the other direction. I've been on the beach today and I was watching a retriever <laughs> fetch a ball, a tennis ball from the sea. Now, you'd have to have the hardest, coldest heart to think that that dog was not having a super good time doing that. And yet, from a scientific, from a really pure rationalist scientific perspective, it's very hard for us to say that dog is, is experiencing joy at this time. So I think that we're really struggling to get into this middle ground of saying that, yeah, animals clearly have emotions, yet we find it difficult to know what those emotions are. Now the new standard seems to be theory of mind, that there is a sense of self-awareness that may or may not be shared by animals, and that may be the definition. Creatures reacting to themselves in the mirror knowing it's a mirror, for example. For your fear listeners that aren't familiar with it, it is, it is the idea that at a certain point during our own development, from birth onwards, we begin to recognize that the image that we're looking at when held up to a mirror is ourselves rather than a picture or rather than a video of another creature. And the way we test that is because if you put a dot on the forehead of the baby aged a year, on average, they will look at it and they won't recognize, they won't, they won't see that that image is them. By the time they're about 18 months or two, they'll touch their own forehead at the dot, recognizing that the image in the mirror is, is indeed themselves. Many people have tried to test various animals with this. And I've got a sort of issue with why you would do that. Gorillas don't recognize themselves and so on. It's not an appropriate test for so many of these animals. Gorillas are a good example. Eye contact between two male gorillas is unabashedly aggressive act. 
So you see another male gorilla staring at you in the eyes. You're going to charge at that mirror and try and smash it up. So why on earth would this be some kind of recognition of our of some kind of self-awareness in, in a gorilla as it is in, in us? People have tried it on dogs, too, where dogs don't pass the, the, the mirror test, but dogs' primary form of communication is via smell. You'd have to devise some kind of smell mirror test in order for dogs to consider that self-awareness. Applying it to animals, just it doesn't really say anything about the animals. It says a lot about us. There's a scene in the film Inherit the Wind, which is a fictional recounting of the Scopes trial, the trial of a Tennessee teacher for teaching evolution against the law almost 100 years ago, in which Spencer Tracy, playing a Clarence Darrow-like character, says, so what is it that makes us human? The butterfly is more beautiful, the horse is stronger, and he says it is the ability to think. Mr. Brady, why do you deny the one faculty of man that raises him above the other creatures of the earth? The power of his brain to reason. What other merit have we? The elephant is larger, the horse is swifter and stronger, the butterfly is far more beautiful, the mosquito is more prolific, even the simple sponge is more durable. What does a sponge think? Is that what we have told ourselves for so long? I think we have told ourselves that. And again, the question arises, is this a difference in degree or kind? But it's crazy to think that animals don't think. And by the way, I absolutely adore that film. I love Spencer Tracy <laughs> in, in that role. And I love Bruce Springsteen's song about it even more. Well, did God make man in a breath of holy fire? Or did he crawl on up out of the muck and mire? Well, a man on the street believes what the Bible tells him so. But you can ask me, mister, because I know. Tell them soul-sucking preachers to come on down and see Part man, part monkey, baby, that's me You watch a dog quite clearly dreaming of stuff that has happened during that day. I don't want to sound like I'm totally flaky about this. I'm a proper scientist and I think about these things hard. But to imagine that we are the only creature that thinks is, well, it's misunderstood what thought is for a start. But it is terribly anthropocentric. And its role in that, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, whether or not Dara actually said that in real life, I, I do not know. I understand the dramatic point of it, but I think that it's wrong. The counterpoint in that trial was the question of religion and its influence on how we perceive ourselves. To what extent has religion governed our sense of ourselves as distinct and apart and fought against the notion of us as another animal? Yeah. Well, that's a terrific and terrifically hard question to answer. We often think about religions being one thing, particularly Christianity being one thing. Well, in fact, Christianity is many, many different flavors to whoever holds those views. I think it is different, quantifiably different in the States compared to the UK where I am now, where I live. But for the most part, people accept that we are evolved from earlier apes. The creationism is not really such a big deal over here. I think it is perfectly possible, as several popes have done, to not feel antagonistic about the idea that we are both the paradox of being both special and part of nature, inherently rooted from the same branches of everything in nature. And I've got no beef with that. I mean, founding fathers were primarily, they were mostly deists, not that Christian, compared to many of the American politicians today. And so the fact that these things change over time, it says a lot more about culture than it does about our own position. I don't get it. I'm really happy being 
a conundrum. I'm really happy that we are a species that is interesting enough to ask these questions. How do we evolve like this without needing us to have been specially created? But then again, I guess any atheist would say the same thing. Your book made me think of a reverse anthropomorphism, what the animals think of us. The dog who thinks, look, I've trained that creature to throw the ball, and the cat who thinks, look, I've trained that creature to open a can of food for me. Cats are the best example of that, aren't they? Because, I mean, we think of them as our pets, but it's, it's clearly the only interaction between cats and humans is that we are their butlers. The domestication of dogs, I think, is a fascinating area because now we're completely codependent. Most dogs exist they only because of their interaction with us. Then again, this is something which occurs across the whole of nature. One of the stories I really liked in the book was when talking about agriculture, so you think of that as being an inherently human behavior, when in fact those leaf cutter ants that we see on David Attenborough documentaries carrying leaves, you know, hundreds of times their own weight or whatever, the leaves aren't the food. What they're doing is they're taking the leaves in order to, as a, as a substrate, in order to grow a particular fungus on the leaves, and the fungus is the food. They then weed and they have antibiotics which grow in bacteria on their bodies, on their faces, which only exist in those species. The funguses themselves only exist in the context of their relationship with leafcutter ants. So you've got three species there of total mutualism, none of which would exist in their current format unless they had evolved to be mutually beneficial for all three. So we talk about domesticating or taming the natural world. Well, you know, ants have been doing this stuff for 20, 30, 40 million years before humans existed. Nature is integrated. Nothing lives apart from anything else. We're a dominant species, but a very short-lived one. As we approach Earth Day, we think of humans as both the ruination of the planet and necessarily its saviors. Where are your thoughts on Earth Day? Well, I'm, I'm an optimist, and like I said earlier, I'm a humanist with a small h. I believe that we are capable of creating such wonders, and we're an inherently technological species as well. We messed up this planet, and... We will fix it if we could just get our heads together and look above the politics of economics and greed and actually work out that this planet was not gifted to us, but we are integrated with it. One of the errors that people make when they talk about ecological disasters that we have set upon the Earth is that we have killed the Earth. That is not true. The Earth will continue spinning and life will continue for millions of years after we have removed the ability for us to live on it. I also think our future lies in the stars and that if my children don't, their children will set foot on other planets. I think, I hope, we don't make the same mistakes that we did the first time around. There was one distinction of humanity that was made by an American writer, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Mark Twain said, humans are the only animal that blushes or needs to. Mark Twain said so many good things. I suppose that's true, isn't it? I mean, that's the conundrum. That's the paradox. We evolved ourselves into a position where we managed to screw things up, but also recognize that we did so. Think what it would mean if I could talk to the animals. Just imagine it, chatting to a chimp in chimpanzee. Adam Rutherford, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, well, you too, Pat. Pat Morrison asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music and movie moments are Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet from Columbia Pictures, Inherit the Wind from United Artists, The Big Blue Marble from PBS and A&M Records, Talk to the Animals in the 20th Century Fox film Dr. Doolittle, 
and Bruce Springsteen performed Part Man, Part Monkey live at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I conferred with our furry friends, man to animal. 